Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Same Old, Same Old, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for February 10th, 2019. Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. As Luke describes the scene in this week's gospel story, it's early morning, and Simon Peter is cleaning his fishing nets after a miserable night out on the lake. He and his partners have worn themselves out, casting their nets from dusk till dawn into the dark water. As the sun rises, they have nothing to show for their efforts but sore muscles and weary hearts. Their nets are empty. But then Jesus shows up, steps into Simon's boat, and tells his would-be disciple to put out into the deep water. In other words, to do the same old, same old one more time, with no guarantee that he'll get better results. Simon protests, Master, we have worked all night long. But then he obeys, yet if you say so, I will. As soon as Simon's net hits the water, his emptiness gives way to epiphany. I love this gospel story for many reasons. Here are a few of them. First, I love that it describes failure so honestly. I'm no fisherman, but I know what it's like to work really hard at something that matters and have nothing to show for my efforts when it's done. I imagine we all do. I imagine we all know what it's like to pour ourselves into a job, a relationship, a ministry, a project, and come away exhausted, frustrated, thwarted, and done. But the good news is that Jesus shows up. Maybe Jesus has a penchant for showing up at precisely such moments of loss and defeat. Maybe when he asks us to return to places of pain and failure, he doesn't stand at the shore and wave. He steps into the boat and ventures into the deep water with us. Is his timing bizarre and maddening? Yes, sometimes. But maybe his timing is also perfect. Maybe we're most open to epiphanies when we've exhausted our own resources and know that we've got nothing much to lose in saying yes to one more attempt at Jesus at our side. Second, the story honors the same old, same olds of human life. Jesus' call in the story is specific and particular, rooted in the language, culture, and vocation as hearers know best. Simon and his partners understand the nuances of the catching people metaphor in ways I never will. That is, they know from years of experience what depths of patience, resilience, intuition, and artistry professional fishing require. Simon knows the tools of the trade, the limitations of his body, and the life and death importance of timing, humility, and discretion. Most of all, he knows the water. He knows how to respect it, how to listen to it, and how to bring forth its best. When Jesus calls a seasoned fisherman to follow him, Simon understands the call not as a directive to leave his experience and intelligence behind, but to bring the best of his knowledge and expertise forward, to become even more fully and freely himself. This suggests to me that we don't follow Jesus in the abstract. We don't heed his call in general, as if Christianity comes down to nothing more than attending church or being a nice person. If we're going to follow him at all, we'll have to do it in the particulars of the lives, communities, cultures, families, and vocations we find ourselves in. We'll have to trust that God prizes our intellects, our backgrounds, our educations, and our skills, and that he will bless and multiply the daily stuff of our lives for his purposes. This is a promise to cultivate us, not to sever us from what we love. It's a promise rooted in gentleness and respect, not violence and coercion. It's a promise that when we dare to go deep, to do what we know how to do with Jesus at our side, God will enliven our efforts in ways we couldn't have imagined on our own. Third, I love the abundance at the heart of this story. In Jesus' day, the fishing industry in Palestine was fully under the control of the Roman Empire. 
Caesar owned every body of water, and all fishing was state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite. Fishermen couldn't obtain licenses to fish without joining a syndicate. Most of what they caught was exported, leaving local communities impoverished and hungry. And the Romans collected exorbitant taxes, levies, and tolls each time fish were sold. To catch even one fish outside of this exploitative system was considered illegal. How amazing, given this historical context, is the image of boats so laden with fish that even a weathered fisherman like Simon Peter is undone. This is extravagant, excessive, ridiculous generosity. Food for all, food security for all, justice for all, nurture for all. In this Eucharistic image of plenitude, Jesus shows Simon what God's kingdom will look like when it's fully established. God's kingdom will suffer no empty nets, no empty tables, no exploitation of any kind. God's kingdom will mean good news for all meaning that if whatever we profess is not good news for all, it's not God. Lastly, I love this story because it tells the truth about my journey with God and my faith. Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. Sometimes I feel like I'm suspended in the gap between those two searing sentences. Is it just me, or do we all live in the gap between weariness and hope, defeat and faith, resignation and obedience? Though we're often reluctant to admit it, for fear of sounding ungrateful or irreverent, life can be a grind, a same old, same old of monotony and failure. Even the best and brightest of us can land up on shore some mornings with empty, stinking fishing nets tangled in our hands, wondering what the heck went wrong. The hardest thing to do at those moments is to make the leap Simon makes. Yet if you say so, I will. Yet if you say so, I will try again. Yet if you say so, I will do the work you have called and created me to do. Yet if you say so, I will go deep, rather than remain in the shallows. Yet if you say so, I will trust that your presence in the boat is more precious than any guarantee of success. Yet if you say so, I will cast my empty net into the water and look with hope for your kingdom to come. May it be so. For books this week, we review The Secret Chord by Geraldine Brooks. This book review is by Brad Keister. Geraldine Brooks, an Australian-born journalist, has in recent years turned her efforts toward historical novels, one of which, March, won the Pulitzer Prize. The premise of The Secret Court is that King David has asked the prophet Nathan to chronicle his life with full access to all of the primary characters, including the prominent women. Such permissions could only come from the king. It appears that David is worried that he will be forgotten by subsequent generations, and so he has resolved to have his story told, both the beautiful and the ugly. The book's title and an underlying narrative borrow from the first lines of Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah, which refers to David's musical gifts, for his personal use, and ultimately for his people. There is scant historical information about David apart from the biblical text, so Brooks weaves in a context that fleshes out life during that time, life in a king's court, the gruesome reality of hand-to-hand combat, and the prevailing view of women, to name a few examples. David is described as unwelcome and unwanted by his father, Jesse, which leads to his almost not being identified as Israel's future leader. There is also Jesse's subsequent resentment of David and David's perpetual quest for affirmation. Women were subjected to abuse, assaults, and broken promises almost on a whim. The dysfunction of David's family reads like a godfather script. Brooks portrays David as having to depend upon Nathan to assess his own standing with God. Nathan, in turn, does not have any special insight on a continuing basis, but rather has compelling visions of critical junctures. 
All of this certainly employs a 21st century lens, but it offers a plausible insight into the full reality of the key players beyond their simply existing as vehicles to deliver a theological perspective. This is a difficult but welcome task in trying to understand how we are alike and how we differ from our counterparts 3,000 years ago. For movies this week, we review what is art good for? What can art do when civilization is lost or, or in response to a horror like the Holocaust? Is art just a buzz or fashion, a realm of the rich? Or is it somehow necessary to being fully human? This one-hour film, narrated by the art historian Simon Shama of Columbia University, argues passionately for the latter position, and does so with a historical romp that begins with the abstractions of modernism and ends in Israel with Michael Rovner. The film begins with an Austrian art teacher named Friedel Dieker Brandeis, who in December 1942 arrived at the Terezin ghetto and while there gave art classes to the children. After the war, two secret suitcases of hers were found with 4,500 pieces of art by those children, which are now housed in the Pincus Synagogue Art Museum in Prague. On Nawashima Island, Japan, the Chichu Art Museum was designed as a place of aesthetic power and spiritual purity beyond the consumer's culture, violence, and ugliness of modern life. Contemporary art returned to representations of nature, person, story, and history, seen in the images of bombed-out cities of Ansel, Ansem Kiefer, that were a sort of exorcism of German history and a protest against forgetting. Further cameos feature the African-American Kara Walker, the Ghanaian textile artist El Anatsui of Nigeria, whose works exude beauty and joy, and the Chinese Kai Gao Qiang's use of gunpowder to depict the terrible beauty of creation and destruction. For Ai Weiwei, the signature issue of our age it captures his artistic imagination is a displacement of 65 million people worldwide. For 50,000 years, observed Shama, in every imaginable material and style, artists have reimagined the world in unanticipated ways, giving us something that we can't find anywhere else, something that is both enduring and profound. I watched this film from the PBS website. And finally, for poetry this week, Prayer for Overcoming Indifference <clears throat> by Chaim Stern. For the sin of silence, for the sin of indifference, for the secret complicity of the neutral, for the closing of borders, for the washing of hands, for the crime of indifference, for the sin of silence, for the closing of borders, for all that was done, for all that was not done, let there be no forgetfulness before the throne of glory. Let there be remembrance within the human heart. And let there at last be forgiveness when your children, O God, are free and at peace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 10th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.